0: Hello everyone, I'm Debbie Batat, the CEO and founder of Surge. And this is Surge the Podcast, a podcast spotlighting plastic and reconstructive surgeons and aesthetic practitioners who have truly changed the medical landscape. We are talking about the journey of their incredible careers, how they built their practices, their views on creating an outstanding patient experience, and their perspectives on the latest topics and techniques in the aesthetics industry. Before we get started, we are proud to say that we are recording from Google for Startups Campus, Google's home for startups. Campus offers startups the opportunity to gain access to Google products, connections, and best practices as well as programming and events for startups. We are now in their creator studio, a state-of-the-art video and podcast room available to startups for free. For more info on all things campus, check out their website, www.campus.co, and click on the city nearest to you. And now we are thrilled to welcome you to Season 1, Episode 1 of Surge, the podcast. Today's guest is Professor Alberto Rancati, who comes to us from Argentina. Professor Rancati has had a phenomenal career in surgery, in research, and in education. He's currently the Chief of Oncoplastic Surgery at the Henry Moore Institute of Oncology in Buenos Aires, as well as the Director of Plastic Surgery for Latin America at the Center for the Future of Surgery at the University of California, San Diego. He still finds time to run a successful private practice in Buenos Aires, and on top of that, he's published extensively within relevant plastic surgery literature and presents his work internationally at oncologic and plastic surgery conferences. He is a world-renowned educator in aesthetic and reconstructive surgery of the breast, having led trainings around the globe for tens of thousands of practitioners. He has a particular interest in helping doctors improve patient-physician relationships via effective communication methodology, and we are also thrilled to have him as Surge's chief medical officer. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how Professor Rankati has established his practice, his core beliefs, which have helped him grow throughout the years, and tips and tricks on effective patient communication. To get us started, hello and welcome.
1: Hello, Debbie.
0: Hi, hi, welcome. First, tell us when and why you decided to become a plastic surgeon.
1: Well, you know, my father is a doctor. He's 94 years old now and he's still involved in in education and he writes some articles. And he was an oncologic surgeon. He's not practicing anymore. But I remember when I was 16 years old that uh, he saw a mole on my left arm and I was diagnosed uh, with a melanoma on my left arm. So uh, I remember... When I underwent surgery uh, with a very satisfactory oncologic result, I'm 60 years old now, (laughs) but a terrible reconstructive outcome. So, uh, there I decided to be a doctor and to be a plastic surgeon because uh, it was something that was bothering me for years. So, uh, I think that when you are impacted with something like this in, in your first age of life, uh, I think this is something that makes you change uh, the way of looking, as uh, happened to me personally, and try to to revert this over the years. So that's why I decided to go into plastic surgery.
0: Indeed, the traumatic events can sometimes affect us in such positive ways, and therefore other people as well. Yeah. Thank you. Tell us about the early days, please, of how you set up your medical practice. What were your most significant challenges in the beginning and how did you solve them? What did you learn from it?
1: Uh, Well, I I completed my general surgery and plastic surgery residency program at University of Buenos Aires, Argentina. And I remember that I was uh, very worried uh, in this period uh, in my 30s about success. And because um, I was surrounded uh, by wonderful surgeons, but they were not so successful as I imagined that they needed to be for their effort, or how skillful they were. So I began traveling around the world and I was uh, engaged in, in plastic and reconstructive surgery from my first years of practice. And I began uh, making appointments with uh, different, very well-known and successful doctors, plastic surgeons around the world, Uh, not telling them that I was uh, a surgeon or a doctor, (laughs) just making appointments uh, with Fodna High, Tom Biggs, Pat Maxwell. And so I asked them a consultation for an nose job or for hair transplantation or something uh, just to check uh, why they were so successful and skillful. So, uh, and and I learned a lot about this uh, because uh, they had uh, in their consultation a lot of common things that I learned and take into my practice.
0: If you had to say that there's one common characteristic that these physicians had, can you identify that?
1: Yes, after several consultations with these great names in plastic surgery, uh, what I found out that they were extremely professional and extremely friendly and very well surrounded by a wonderful team. And they have a wonderful uh, environment in their office and amenities and technology so uh, the, the experience in my memory uh, was not only about uh, the medical consultation uh, exactly, but about the experience uh, being with them. And, and I think this is very, very, very important. It's, you can be the most skillful surgeon, but if you don't realize that the people will choose you not only... Uh, for this because they, they don't really know if you are going to be so good at the operating room. But it's a matter of trust. Right. And this is something invisible. So it's something that you must transmit uh, quality, you must transmit uh, experience. And, and this is uh, your reputation, your credentials, and also your way of handling a communication with your patients.
0: One of the things that may come up for the audience who's listening to this, they may say, I'm just starting. I don't have the resources yet to create this environment and atmosphere. I don't have the possibility to hire a large staff. So could you help to guide them with the right first investments in creating a practice and keeping in consideration fundamental characteristics that you mentioned? What would be the first place to start?
1: First of all, you need to know what kind of practice uh, you want to develop. A solo practice, a, a group of practitioners. You are working just at the university. So let's talk in, in private practice, because I think this is the most challenging uh, situation. So if you are on your 30s and you are deciding to uh, go on a solo practice, uh, first of all, I would say that uh, you must begin with the end in mind. So you must uh, visualize your practice in two or three years, because uh, nothing is immediate. Uh, you need time to develop uh, what you are thinking about and you cannot be good for everything so you, you must know what you want to be and how to be seen so if you want to uh, make a practice on face it's something if you want to make a breast practice it's another thing if you want to make congenitals it's another one so first of all you must make decisions uh, you cannot be good for everything. So you must decide uh, and that's why I I say you must begin with the end in mind. You must make the different strategies for each one. So you you cannot get what you want till you know what you want. So first of all, you must know what you are planning and then you make the strategy. Then second, I would say that to deliver credibility, it's something that you must do from the beginning what we are talking about trust uh, reputation credentials and this is made over the time by traveling reading uh, writing learning teaching so if everybody sees you that you are engaged uh, with what you are doing i think it pays off in the time so don't be anxious to to have results immediately but this is the only road to, to a successful practice. And the third, I would say, is uh, you must commit to excellence because attention to all the details. Uh, you must feel uh, 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 proud of your practice. You must, be, you must overpass patient expectations. So that's optimal customer service and the, the spirit. Uh, that you give to your office is something that you, you don't need to spend uh, money for this. It's uh, an attitude. So all of this is your image. Perhaps you can only hire your secretary, the, the person that will be your image when you are not in the office. So it's very important to, to select from the early beginning your staff. So I think these three points... Uh, Uh, makes you a a good advice for the beginning of your practice.
0: You've had, in speaking about hiring, you've had now staff that's been with you for a very long time. And we all know that there's a huge cost of employee turnover. So what's your secret in retaining your staff for such a long time? And can you also tell us a little bit about how you educate your staff in the beginning and how you create a culture within your practice?
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the, the secrets. You know, today I work with around 15 people around me, which is patient coordinators, secretaries, receptionists, nurses, security. And we have been working together for more than 20 years. So all the people that, that began working with me, they are still at the office. And this is really very comfortable for me. And it's a really friendly the environment. And I enjoy being with them. So a lot of people ask me how I handle to hire a team and to keep it uh, for such a long time. And the secret is uh, not only to hire people with a good CV, but uh, to select the staff yourself for their personality. Uh, They must match the group. So I can see a wonderful CV. But after looking at this, I go and, and take a coffee. And if I cannot take a coffee uh, alone with someone I'm, I'm trying to hire, and I do not enjoy that moment, I think it's uh, not the matching personality for the group, I cannot hire them. And on the contrary, if I find these kind of people that they really put the spirit in working uh, with others and monthly or at least every two months I make a meeting with, with all of them and uh, we talk about what's happening and we compare year by year the our results and, and, and they take benefits for my practice also economically. So they, they are uh, really engaged in making this to be successful. So I think you must be generous and selective by hiring the people that work with you by yourself, uh, not asking somebody else to hire a secretary or uh, I need another security man. No, you must take the time to drink a coffee and to check the personality. And I think that this is the, the only way to have a a friendly environment between your staff.
0: You've written a lot of articles on patient communication and actually even how to identify a potentially litigious or problematic patient. And you've also mentioned that your staff is crucial to help you identify this. So can you talk a little bit more about some of the characteristics that they look out for and, and how they help you? in selecting yes. the right patients for your practice
1: when you have one of these problematic patients in your waiting room surely you don't see these initial signs that they can they, they don't arrive to your office with a card saying i am problematic so but they give you some tips uh, and first of all uh, it's very important the way they communicate by phone the first place where you can identify one of these patients is when they are uh, making an appointment with you so they begin asking for different times to come on to see you on a Saturday or uh, after they close their office they make and break down the appointment so my receptionist knows that these patients they receive a red cross over the chart so then when they come to the waiting room they are always uh, anxious, asking for water to take a pill. They want to go to the bathroom. They are asking about time and why uh, am I late? Oh, so, and, and, and they begin uh, being bad banners, perhaps. And, and this is something I don't see. So my staff are my eyes in the waiting room. And they must be aware of this and that this can happen. Because when you open... The door of your office and the patient, the problematic patient appears, uh, it's, it's uh, flattering you. And you say, oh, Dr. Rancati, uh, it's wonderful to see you. I have heard so many good things about you. And so did you know that what was happening in the waiting room and with the appointment previous to that? So you must be aware of this. And when my staff detects some of these personalities, They always say they are a a wolf with the sheep (laughs) clothes. You must know it beforehand. And that's the work of my staff in the waiting room. So when they arrive, I I know that something in their behavior, it's uh, not going good.
0: And from the other point of view, once you have a patient with you in the consulting room, any patient, not necessarily... A challenging one. What are some things that you do to keep a positive rapport between the two of you?
1: Yes, well, uh, you know, uh, for me, a first consultation is crucial to know if I like the patient or not and if the patient is really a, a good patient for my practice today. So uh, I reject a, a lot of patients that I think. Uh, they are expecting something unreal in the results or they are looking for a minor defect to be repaired and they see it as something terrible and I don't see what they are seeing. So if we do not match in the expectation, I, I try to, to reject these patients. I think it's uh, the most worthwhile uh, situation to reject a conflicted patient because uh, it can be a nightmare, so I try to to decide in my first consultation where the patient uh, comes from, which are the referrals. If the what he or she is asking is something I can really deliver, if the problematic is real, I am really. Uh, rejected with these patients. I, I try to, to to avoid surgery in patients. I, I, I have this gut feeling that uh, I don't like them. So if I don't uh, feel comfortable with the patient, um, I really try not to make surgery on them. I, I think that if, if you can uh, feel today that all your patients can be your friends and they feel that they are your friends. That's a, a good point to know if you are doing good or not. So if your patients after surgery don't want to see you anymore or your your friends goes to another doctor to make surgery, mm, there is something you are doing wrong. So you, you must revise this.
0: In the beginning of your career, I imagine that it, it wasn't always the case that you... Only took patients that you felt good with, and I'm sure along the way that you've had some some challenges. Is that correct?
1: Uh, well, you know, I have been always very selective. I remember a lot of patients that in my first years of career I was not sure to to accept them as patients, and I reject them. And perhaps I was uh, I was wrong, or I was. Exaggerating, but after all these years, uh, I, I, I can tell you I have never been sued, uh, and that's something uh, that is strange in our days. And I think this happened because I have been very selective. So uh, right. for the activity of having one more surgery scheduled, I think it's not a good advice to accept every patient that come to your office. Because in the early beginning is where you be more careful. Because if I uh, have a situation today and I can be sued today, but it will not be so dramatic as if this happens in your early days of your career. So I think uh, today we are in a risky profession and plastic surgeons must take uh, care about uh, their investment in their career because there are a lot of years so you cannot risk risky by uh, making surgery on a patient with very difficult expectations to to achieve.
0: That's a very good pointer for people who are starting, who are eager to get customers, even though in the short run, it might seem like, mm-hmm. like they're losing business. In the long run, they're gaining their practice and their reputation.
1: Yes. And, and this is something interesting you said. If you look them as customers, you are not in the good path. They are not customers. They are patients and they are People that they must match your personality as the same as you uh, happens with your staff. The problem is that uh, today everybody wants to be rich and famous tomorrow. And that's not what we studied medicine for. So uh, you must have the spirit of helping. You must have the spirit of doing something that you are proud of. And of course, you work the dec- Because you need to earn money. But that's not the objective. That's a consequence. So don't look at your patients as customers. Because this is the point where you lose contact with a human being. uh, As a friend that needs your help. And we are doctors. Uh, We are plastic surgeons, but we are doctors. And patients want to have this uh, confident uh, sensation when they are in front of a doctor. So uh, I think this is something that marketing is doing over our practice, trying to change patients to customers. And no, if you keep thinking that they are patients and that you are helping them, I think uh, that's the way to success. Perhaps it's not the the quick result as everybody expects. And it's okay because this is not a, a profession where you have success in one or two years. But if you love what you do, and if you really want to help patients, treatment like human beings and not like customers that they they must return to buy something more.
0: Indeed. And that's a way to have a long lasting professional relationship. Yeah. So we can switch gears a little bit and talk about some more technical topics uh, with regards to complications revisions and also in challenges mm-hmm. can you tell us how you are managing the communication with the patient
1: yeah you know today we are facing a lot of difficult news to communicate like ALCL and I think we must be extremely clear to our patients because the, the problem is when they do not get the exact information so if you tell a patient that comes for a breast augmentation that breast augmentation is uh, a hundred percent unnecessary surgery (laughs) and that uh, you have some topics to talk about uh, like uh, rippling uh, like capsular contracture that surely you will need another surgery in some years that uh, the materials cannot last forever that uh, one very uh, small, small percentage of them can have an ALCL. If the patient receives all this information and does not accept uh, one of them, they are not good candidates for surgery. So it's, it's, for me, today, I begin talking for within, in first consultation uh, with the bad news about breast augmentation, for example. So if they realize that this comes with the land and they will have all these uh, possible problems uh, in the future and they still decide to go ahead, okay, I I am there to help them and to make surgery and then to take care of all these possible complications if they arrive. But it's not something that I try to put a mat over uh, and do not talk about it. I think it's very important to tell the the reality in the first consultation.
0: And what do you find is the reception from the patients? How can you, as a doctor, prepare yourself for some of the questions that might come in, especially in the early stages?
1: You know, some of the patients that come for first time to consultation, it's not the first time they make a consultation on, on breast augmentation, for example. And... Uh, but perhaps it's the first time they receive all these bad news. Um, so, uh, and I prefer, and I ask them to make more consultations and to, I love when they come with uh, a witness to the consultation because I talk all this in front of someone and I write the name of, of the, the, the people that are with the patient at the office. On the chart, and as I always say the same, and then I, uh, before surgery, I give my patients the informed consent, saying all this. I have never had a problem for one of these complications because uh, it was completely talked before surgery. So I, 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 uh, again, in the early stages of your uh, profession, I think more and more important is to. tell the truth to your patients about the, the bad news and about the complications of surgery and about revisions. and about, Because if not, it's a promise that in some cases, statistically, you cannot keep. And we are not there to, to, to keep promises that are not true. So, uh, if, and, and this makes a difference because I have had lots of patients that, after several consultations, they decided to undergo surgery with me uh, because they feel that it was a, a very real and trustful relationship. I think that it's, it's, it's a way of, of thinking and acting very transparent with your patients about the complications, bad news and revisions about plastic surgery because it's a real thing. It's not... We are prepared just to have success in our practice, and it, that's not the, the real thing. Uh, we have a lot of patients, and you will have a lot of revisions from other sessions and for yourself. So uh, if you are not prepared to talk to the patient about this possibility, they will not accept complications. They will be surprised with the complication, and they must not be surprised.
0: What can you say about any consent form that you're using? Do you have any recommendations about that?
1: Yes, I use the, the uh, informed consent from the American State of Plastic Surgery uh, that are pretty clear. And, uh, but uh, all these uh, details uh, about this is the 100% unnecessary surgery. And uh, you can have, we have talked about the possibility of rippling, capsular contraction, infection, extrusion. So all things we have seen in our careers, I put it by my hand over the Inforcom sense to make it clear that it's not only what is printed, but that we have talked about that.
0: So we're going to change gears once again and talk a little bit about Social media, or rather, in this case, the lack thereof. <laughs> we see plenty of talented physicians who do not use social media, and you're actually one of them, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you think that social media is necessary for today's aesthetic practices and those practitioners who are just getting started? And if not, how can the practice survive without it?
1: <laughs> yes, this is a, a, a very controversial topic, and I love to talk about this with young surgeons because I think that social media it's a wonderful tool. I don't have Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and I'm happy not to have it because I have more time for myself and not to take care about this. But if you decide to use social media as a tool, I think it's wonderful if you decide to promote your practice professionally. Uh, practice and uh, hiring someone that really will take care of your image. But as far as I see, uh, plastic surgeons and social media are losing the scope and they use uh, social media for promoting themselves. So they want to look uh, rich and famous and they act as celebrity doctors showing the cars uh, fashion look, different places around the world. And I think that's something that does not help your image, credentials, and reputation. Uh, So in the long run, I think that social media, if it is well used, can help, but I don't see that this is happening. And as there is no regulation about this, Uh, Well, they use it in uh, a bad way that I think that uh, it's on the contrary of uh, what you you should show uh, as being a serious uh, plastic surgeon and the academic uh, point of view of uh, what the people need to see about plastic surgery.
0: Thank you. We have just one more question. Finally, what was a pivotal moment in your profession?
1: The most important moment is when I was working in in Italy at the National Cancer Institute with the fellowship uh, of the UICC, the International Union Against Cancer, for this problem that happened to me about the melanoma. I asked for a fellowship on melanoma at the National Cancer Institute with uh, Dr. Casinelli at that moment, and the director of the Institute was uh, Dr. Umberto Veronese. And meeting him uh, made me change a lot uh, of my objectives in my career. Um, first, I stayed for six months in the melanoma unit and changed to breast with Veronesi, which is one of the great uh, leaders uh, in breast surgery. He was. Uh, he died two years ago, and he was always having uh, projects. He died at 92 years, and he created the European School of Oncology, uh, Europa Donna, um, the the possibility of uh, having fellowships for the UICC. So uh, I learned a lot about uh, long-lasting projects, uh, and that's what I. Uh, make today. I, I am engaged in long-lasting projects, um, so I think this was something uh, critical in my career. Being with him for three years uh, in Milan uh, was something wonderful that changed my way of working.
0: Amazing, and that also explains the connection that you've had with with Italian, the <laughs> Italian medical <laughs> sphere that we see. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. To end, we have some rapid-fire questions that we ask all guests. So it's really just meant to be half a minute. Let's get started. Who in your field of work was a great inspiration for you, and why?
1: Dr. Maurizio Nava, also from Italy, from the he was the head of uh, plastic surgery division at the National Cancer Institute in Milano, and I. Uh, keep working with him, and he introduced me in the idea of the vertical breast surgeon. So, if you want to make breast surgery, you must uh, know about oncology, uh, plastic surgery, Uh, you must make research. So, a vertical surgeon uh, is the concept, I think, uh, is the best way to be prepared for our patients. So... uh, I think Maurizio, it's who changed also my practice.
0: If you could recommend one guest to be on the show next, who would it be?
1: Oh, without any doubts, Maurizio. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: yeah, I think it, it's very interesting to to see the evolution uh, of research because he has been assistant for Veronese for many years, and uh, he really uh, keeps doing. Uh, Uh, all these uh, making conferences and teaching around the world and uh, just engaging in breast surgery.
0: What would you do if you were not a plastic surgeon?
1: (laughs) Uh, For sure, I would have run a communication business. (laughs) 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 I I love phones, internet, video calls, so uh, I, I, I can remain... Hours in, in, in a communication store. So I, I would have enjoyed a lot uh, running a store.
0: <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> and what is the single one most useful tip that you've learned during your career which you think will help others?
1: Um, that there is no lack or magic in your future success. Uh, your future must be built by yourself. So uh, you must concentrate in in one topic, uh, put a lot of effort and remember you cannot be good for everything. So select uh, your area of, of development and when you see something that uh, really takes your passion, uh, you must follow it. And when you see someone that is successful, uh, there is a lot of effort behind. It's, it's not a, a, a lucky man or something magical. Uh, That's right. You, you must build your future yourself.
0: Thank you so much for your time with us here today. Professor Rankati, it's often been said about you that you are a scholar and a gentleman. And I can imagine that, that your honesty and that your bedside manner is really appreciated by your patients. So thank you for sharing your philosophy with our audience. It's been wonderful to have you on our first episode.
1: Thank you, Debbie. I'm very happy to, to be part of, of this new development and I hope it will be so successful as yourself.
0: (laughs) Thank you. That was Professor Alberto Rancati from Buenos Aires, Argentina. For more inspiring interviews with experts like him, subscribe to Surge, the podcast. If you're happy with what you heard, Please spread the word on your socials and don't forget to rate us. It makes such a difference. If you want to be in touch, please send us an email at info at surge That's I-N-F-O at S-U-R-G-E dot I-S. Thank you for listening.